Well, the Scottish minister, James Stewart, in trying to communicate to his hearers the power of Jesus and the, the person that we see in scriptures, he penned this essay to them. I want to read to you now. Jesus, he says, was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he said that he would come on the clouds of heaven in the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him. And the little ones nestled in his arms, and his company in the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the sunshine. No one was ever half so kind or compassionate to sinners. Yet, no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin. He would not break the bruised reed, and his whole life was love. Yet, on one occasion, he demanded of the Pharisees how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark naked realism, he has all our self-styled realists beaten. He was the servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple and the hucksters and traitors fell over one another in their mad rush to get away from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at last, himself, he would not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrast that confront you in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of a personality. You see, such contrast forced you to ask the question, who was this person? Who was this man they call Jesus? Because there is a power, and a mystery to him. Every one of these biographers, every one of the authors of these Gospels are all testifying to the fact of who Jesus is. To help us get a picture of this man called Jesus. And every one of the Gospel writers, all four of these witnesses, testify to him living on earth as a man and doing so without sin, and being crucified on a cross for the sins of the world, and three days later rising from the dead. All four of them tell the same story of this man named Jesus. And so for the next four weeks, we are going to take a look at each one of these witnesses' accounts of this life of this man named Jesus. Now, some have asked, why four? And how do they line up? They're all telling the same story. It's like the film made from Charles Dickens' novel, Little Dorrit. It's a film that has two parts. It's not told one part and then it continues into the second story. No, they're both telling the same story, except they're told from a different perspective. One is told from the perspective of the hero, and the other is told from the perspective of the heroine of the story. And when you watch them both, you will see there are scenes that are identical, but then you will see the same scene, but from a different perspective. 
telling the same story. And seeing this story through two different sets of eyes, you gain a deeper and fuller appreciation for what's actually happening. In a similar way, the four gospel writers are telling the same story from a different perspective. They're writing their account to different audiences, audiences that are strange to us today but are revealed, and as we study, we can understand that these stories still have impact in our lives today. Today, the mystery of Jesus is revealed in these Gospels. And each of these weeks, we're going to take just a small little view of the introduction to each of these Gospels, the first one being Matthew, followed by Mark, Luke, and John. And each week, we'll see in their prologues, their introductions, keys to understanding the entire Gospel. So our text for each week will be these introductions. And within those introductions, as I said, they will give you cues to look for as you read. And I said that right, as you read, because we are going to challenge you these next four weeks to read all four Gospels. We're going to limit it to one a week. That's a better challenge. And to help you, we've printed this companion guide as you read to guide you through each day of the week starting tomorrow, a six-day reading plan for reading Matthew and follows on and on. And we'll give you some history and some understanding as you read. And by the end of this series, you could say, I've read all of the Gospels. And I believe that as you do that, as you come each week, you will be given a fuller understanding of who Jesus is and what that means for your life and what it means for the people in your life. So today we're going to turn to Matthew's Gospel, the first of the four Gospel writers in our text. And we're going to look at his prologue, and that can be found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Before we get there, I need prayer, and I would ask you guys to pray with me. Father in heaven, oh, we gather and we anticipate your teaching here this morning. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, my rock, our Redeemer that my words would be your words, that your spirit would be alive and teaching us, all of us, in this time. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew's gospel starts off a little different, especially for our Western ears and eyes, and trying to understand how this prologue actually says anything to us, because this prologue is really giving us the genealogy of Jesus. It's this family tree of Jesus. And to us, it seems kind of strange. And we read through and we see all of these names. And it starts off this way. And it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And it goes so on and so on and so on into names that I don't want to try and pronounce this morning. And to us, it seems interesting, but to the audience that Matthew is writing to, it would have perked their ears, because he's writing primarily to a Jewish culture, an ancient Jewish culture. So to understand what this means and how he's communicating to us, we need a little context. In the ancient Jewish world, and in today in the Middle East and in these Eastern cultures, when a person is introduced, 
They're not introduced by giving all of their accolades, right? Today in our Western culture, if somebody's brought to the stage, they tell you all the books they've written, everything they've done. But in this culture, that's not what they did. To understand who a person was, you had to know who their ancestors, who their fathers were. And here, Matthew is saying to his Jewish hearers, here is Jesus. You want to know who Jesus is? Look at who his ancestors are. You know, if they were to bring me out and say, they wouldn't call my name, right? They would say, he's the son of Alan Diekman, the grandson of Albert Diekman, the great-grandfather, or the great-grandson of Emmett Burris of Van Buren, Illinois, or Missouri, the postmaster of Carter County, the the country philosopher who was well-known throughout the Ozarks for his God-fearing ways. And that's what they're saying about Jesus, but they're saying so much more. Matthew's saying not just that he's got these great people in his past, but he has the great people in his past. For it was foretold that this Messiah that would come would come from this line. He would be seated on his father's throne, David. And so he goes on to start with Abraham all the way down through David, all the way to Jesus saying, he's the one. But not only that, he starts with this name at the top, Abraham. See, all of the Jews at that time would believe themselves to be descendants of Abraham. Why? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. It was his 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of, Ju- of Judah, of Israel. All of the descendants are, an- are descendants of Abraham. All of their ears would be vibrating. And he points to Abraham for a reason. See, he points to Abraham because it was to Abraham that God made the covenant to make him into a father of many nations, even though Abraham was childless at the age of 75, and his wife, Sarah, was the same age, thought to be barren. And back in Genesis chapter 12, God says to him, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then he goes on to make this covenant with Abraham some years later, and Abraham is still without a child. And he asks God, how will this be? And God says, it will happen, because I have said it will happen. And so he goes on to explain to Abraham what will happen, that everybody will come, and he will be a father of many nations. And to seal that promise, he enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham and all of his descendants. And this covenant relationship is this promise between people. And in this promise, they say, I will do this, and you will do this. I will do this regardless of what you do. Both parties would enter into this covenant relationship. And the way they would do that in this ancient time was they would take, as Abraham is instructed to do, to take these animals, specific animals, kill them, and then cut them in half. Kind of morbid, but that's what they did. They would cut them in half, and they would lay them apart on the ground. And they would keep laying them apart, forming this aisle. 
And Abraham knew exactly what God was saying to him. We're going we're to do a covenant. And it was customary that in this covenant, both parties would walk through this aisle, between these pieces. And in doing so, they were committing to this covenant. And what they were saying to one another is, if I don't hold up my end, you can do to me what we did to these animals. And so this was a very serious covenant that God was making with Abraham. So Abraham follows his directions, and he cuts these animals in half, and he lays them out, and then he waits. But nothing happens. And he gets tired, and he falls asleep, and he wakes up in the evening. And when he wakes up, he sees this smoking pot hovering above the ground with this flaming torch passing between the pieces. And Abraham knew that that was God. Because in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture, you see God is identified with fire. So right away, Abraham would know, this is God entering into this covenant with me. But then it goes on, and Abraham is never asked to walk through. So what is God doing with Abraham? Well, God, first of all, is saying to Abraham, as he goes between the pieces... Abraham, if I don't hold up my end to make you a father, to make your name great, to make you the father of many nations, you can do to me what we did to these animals. But then he doesn't ask Abraham to go through. What is God saying to Abraham? He's saying to Abraham that if you don't keep up your end, you can do to me what we did to these animals. Maybe some of you can start to see where this is headed. And so what we see coming out of this story and throughout the entire Old Testament is no one, including Abraham, kept up their end of the covenant. They all fell short. They all succumbed to the temptations of sin and to follow other gods and to follow their own way. And so what does God do? What does he do? Matthew says he sends his son. You want to know who Jesus is? He's the long-awaited fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He is the son of David. He will sit on his father's throne. And then he goes on at the end of this text to say this to Joseph, the betrothed to Mary. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. How does he do this? Well, every one of Abraham's descendants failed in living up to the end of the covenant. So God sends his one and only son into the world to live up to the covenant. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He lived his life on earth doing exactly what the Father told him, living up to Abraham's side of the covenant, fulfilling Abraham's side of the covenant. And every one of Abraham's descendants. And then, not only living out their end of the bargain, we're told that 
30 years later, he also lives up to God's end of the bargain. Remember, he said, Abraham, if you don't end up, if you don't hold up your end, you can do to me what was done to these animals. And 30 years later, God takes his son up the mountain and has him crucified on a cross, a criminal's cross, because Abraham and all of his descendants didn't hold up their end of the bargain. But we see that he not only did this for Abraham and his descendants, but he did that for that great many nations that he promised Abraham. Because by going up on the cross and dying for the sins of the Jewish people, he didn't only die for their sins, he died for the sins of all of those people that God would bring into the family through Jesus. God dying for Abraham and his descendants was God dying for mankind in the person of Jesus. Living up to our end of the covenant so that we could be in a right relationship with God the Father through the Son. And in doing so, He sets us free from that same adversary that had plagued Abraham and his descendants and everybody that came before and everybody that came after. That adversary is identified as Satan and sin that keeps us from keeping that, and He defeats it on the cross. But God doesn't stop there. You heard Erica say, three days later, he raises his son from the dead. And in doing so, he gives us power now to walk in his ways. Not in Abraham's ways, but in his ways. And in doing so, we now are the fulfillment of the covenant that God made to Abraham. The story in the Old Testament, it's our story. We are Abraham's descendants, not by blood, but by faith. Everyone who calls Jesus Christ Lord and Savior are descendants of Abraham through the blood of Jesus. And so when we say that Jesus is risen, we're proclaiming the story of Israel, finding its resolution in the person of Jesus Christ and including us into this story. And so when we say he's risen, it's our story. It's good news and hope for us. But God doesn't stop there. No, he goes on to say that all those who believe in Jesus will become Abraham's descendants, will be made right with God, and also, after this life, we will see him as he is. We will live eternally, just as Jesus lived, with a body just like his, truly resurrected, no longer decaying. And Jesus says he looks forward to that day. In Matthew, he says this to his disciples and to us today. He says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In Matthew chapter 8, he says, people from the east and the west will come and sit at the table of the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And together we will celebrate with Jesus. We will see our fathers and our forefathers and the people in our lives that have gone before us in faith, and we will see Father Abraham. But not only that, Father Abraham will see us. And he will see the fulfillment of the promise that God made to him 
These are all your children, Abraham. And in Matthew's telling us of this story, he's saying to us, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. In Jesus, we, his answer is yes. God is the God of promises. In a world where promises are broken daily, God is the one who fulfills every single promise he makes. Therefore, you can trust in him. You can give your life to him because he will always be faithful. And so when we say he is risen, we are proclaiming that truth. That is what Matthew desires for us today, is that we would know this is our story. That because Jesus is risen, there's hope for this life and there's hope for the next. And that we have been included as descendants of Abraham. And we can celebrate knowing that God's promise is coming through, through us. And that promise is not just for us, but for all who hear. This good news, this gospel, is the power of God into salvation for all who believe. So this morning, I want to ask you a question. If, if you're here and, and you're just not so sure about who this Jesus is, I, I want you to talk to us. If the Spirit is sort of tapping on your heart this morning, I would love to talk with you after the service. And if the Spirit is moving you so, be baptized this morning. If you've not been, we are here after the service and would love to baptize you. And our promise is also that you come and, and you're wanting to take a step, we want to walk with you. We have men and women, brothers and sisters, that would love to walk alongside you and teach you about Jesus, to teach you about this story. He concludes his gospel, Matthew does, with that proclamation you heard Jill read earlier, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, you who have been called, you who have been baptized, you who have faith, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them everything that I've commanded you. And here's the other promise. You're not going alone because I'm going to be with you always. And we know God always keeps his promises. So today, if you call Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, see this as a way to renew your baptism, going in that baptismal strength, proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ has risen. He has risen indeed for every single one of you. Hallelujah. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we give you thanks and glory. We give you honor and we, 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 we sing your name. We sing the things that you have done and, and yet we still don't understand all that there is to know about you. But you promise that if we will seek you, that we will find you when we seek you with our whole hearts. And so, Father, I pray that you would just move our hearts today to seek after you, to seek after your truth, and then that truth would change us. That we could understand that this ancient story still is relevant to us today. And that this story is everyone's story. Give us the courage today to go and share that good news with the world around us, that Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen.